0: More difficult, Lauren and Joe, but as difficult as it was, it's got some depth and richness to it. more than it did before. and I trust in due time we'll be able to sing that all the way through with the emotive qualities of which that psalm evokes. When I was with Joe and Lauren weeks ago, trying to determine the liturgy and the, the songs, one of the things she was concerned about was whatever she chose the next time it was played. It would bring back all of the the memories. Uh, and then the next time, the next time to the extent that she would not be able to bear the song and to form, it had the effect upon me as well. But as I, through the tears, prayed the prayer that we sang, it was rich because we know that we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and God leads us there. And it's a, it's, it's a psalm that I trust in due time will become very meaningful uh, in, in new and rich ways to you, and that you will be able to to sing it uh, in, in due course of time. It's part of the, the covenant life, it's part of life, and how thankful we are for life, and thankful for life in the Lord. Ephesians 5, and you've done well to remain standing as I now turn our attention to the second pass through this passage of Scripture, this time with an emphasis upon wives, uh, as we look through this last Lord's Day with an emphasis on husbands. I had one husband tell me uh, before the service that the reason he showed up today was because he knew I was going to be preaching on the wives, and he just couldn't wait to show up so that he could hear what I had to say to the wives. Wives, you have my permission to ask... Husband, was that you? After the service. And, um, but husbands, this is not a time for you to go to sleep uh, because we are part of the bride of which it is speaking as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we make our way through this passage another time and as we consider the emphasis of which this passage is teaching, Christ and the church, may we be mindful of our place in her as the bride. Whether we're husbands at home, we are still a part of the bride. And so we ask that you would teach us all this day to honor you and to respect you, our bridegroom, to obey you and submit to you from the heart. So teach us all of the characters of these, this virtue. And we pray that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. No, you can't. I, I, I didn't got I things all out of order here. I didn't even read the passage yet, so we prayed over it. Let's uh, remain standing for the honor of the reading of God's word. Beginning at verse 21. Submitting to one another in the fear of God, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the Word, that He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. In this passage, which... The Bible itself says about it, I am primarily speaking, I am speaking about Christ and the church. In fact, the whole little letter of Ephesians is an epistle about the doctrine of the church and then it begins to explore the applications of the church in light of those truthful doctrines. So we have here a metaphor, an earthly physical institution that God has instituted that reveals a heavenly reality. That's why some branches of the church has called marriage a sacrament. Last Lord's Day we considered this passage in relation to husbands, and this morning we will do so unto wives. And there are two main points that stand out in this passage as it pertains to wives in their relationship to their husbands. And those two main principles are submission and respect. These two principles have been the subject of much discussion lately, even among the CPC elders as it pertains to the outbreak of the COVID-19 virus, as it pertains to the church's response to the authorities of the state and how we are to obey those who govern over us. These two principles apply not only to a husband and a wife, submission and respect, but anywhere where there's authority in our lives, you're going to have these principles of submission and respect. We are instructed to both submit to our governing authorities over us, and we are called to honor the king. We are instructed to submit to our ecclesiastical elders and to honor those who rule over us in the Lord. Children are told to obey their parents and honor their father and mother. Even Christ was obedient to the Father. And he said in John 8, I honor my Father. Submission and respect are two principles that apply in every relationship where there is authority in our lives. But these two principles particularly apply to a wife and her husband for two reasons. And I want to explore a little bit of that this morning as we get in, before we even get into the very two words. The two reasons are, are one, because they are. Particular to the divine design and makeup in a woman in her correspondence to a man. So, submission and respect are according to the very design, divine design, and the makeup of the woman in her correspondence to the man. And that's also true of the church and Christ. The second reason is because the oneness that a woman has with her husband, and the two shall become one flesh. It's interesting that it's right after the passage quotes Genesis 2 here, that the man shall leave his mom and father and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he speaks about Christ and the church becoming one flesh, oneness. This is what Christ prayed for. John 17, and he's speaking here specifically in the flesh, becoming one with his bride. That's why the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is so integrally important to us, even though it's a mystery and we do not understand all of those details. Nonetheless, it is that sacrament to the heavenly reality and through the sacramental union between the bread and the wine is inseparably linked to the body and blood of Jesus Physical body and blood, but the exalted, glorious body and blood, and so thereby communicating with his bride in a physical way of oneness. So, when we consider these things, we think about God's creative aspects a bit more in the light of these two principles of submission and respect. Now woman was made different from creation than man was made. Man was made from dirt and woman was made from his side. From his bone and his flesh. She was made from man for man. From the very get-go, before the fall, this is the way it was. And while she has all of the faculties that a man has... Hers has a different set of strengths in each of those faculties than his are. Same faculties, different set of strengths. Otherwise, she wouldn't be his complement, and he wouldn't by reciprocal nature be her complement. The two become one. And due to those differences in a woman... Of the faculties and the strengths there being different from a man and a woman, by creative divine design, a woman is prone, more prone to deception than man is. Man has his vulnerabilities where woman can shore them up, but a woman is particularly vulnerable to deception, believing in lies and the trickery of men. And this attribute in woman is built into her makeup from the beginning, from before the fall. And here I want to turn back to that passage that we read shortly a minute ago and from 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I want us to consider 1 Timothy 2 because there it's also speaking about men and women in the context of the church. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. The Scripture says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, for the reason for that, it's not because the woman is... Less smart than man. Now she's got all the faculties that the man has. The reason was the natural order of creation. There was a divine design in the way and the manner and the order in which God created man and woman. It says, verse 13, "...for Adam was formed first, then Eve." And then it goes on in verse 14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into the transgression. Nevertheless, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, what this is getting at is that the woman is not to have spiritual authority over a man or to teach men spiritually, particularly in the context of the church, And my take on this passage is that the directive here is not due to the curse or some form of punishment as a result of the curse, but rather due to the order and the manner in which man and woman were created. Man was created first, given the instruction of God regarding the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He was to communicate that to the woman, which he did, and it was according to this order and divine design in creative design that she is not to have authority over the man. That's not a punishment. It's just according to the roles that God has given. This is part of the way that God made man and the way that God has assigned man and God has made woman and her her lot in her assignment. And it all is, as God said, all very good. Now Christ is the head of the man, and man is the head of the woman. God the Father is the head of Christ. That's what we read last week from First Corinthians chapter eleven. And let me just reiterate: we're not talking about a subordinationism on his ontological Trinity and the essence of God. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are consubstantial, co-equal, co-eternal. All three of the persons are to be worshipped and prayed to and praised and thanked and adored in personal relations because there are three persons with us, with all three of those members. But it's one God. But as Christ then takes on the mantle of the mediator between God and man, he takes on humanity, and only he of the Godhead does that. And so he becomes fully human, yet still remains fully God. And in that order of mediation, according to his role and to redeem his wife, he then is subordinate in that sense, under the headship of God the Father he came not to do His own will, but the Father who sent Him, and He did it faithfully, and He learned obedience through the things which He suffered, and all of that. And so there is in this the Father, who is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of the woman. There is in this a spiritual didactic flow from headship from God the Father to through God the Son to man and unto the woman. And that is by divine design from the get-go. A woman is designed to receive instruction, to follow her husband, and part of her makeup includes a vulnerability to be more easily deceived than man. And I would not cast that propensity to be more easily deceived as a weakness but rather as part of her dependence upon man for his protection and provision. This was made this way before the fall. I'm not looking at this as a weakness inherent in her character. It's a part of that integral dependence that she has upon his protection. Now, of course, after the fall, everything just gets complicated and goes chaotic. Now man himself lives under a complete deception. The heart of every human is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it as the prophet says? But there still remains a headship principle. When God saves man, it is more likely that his wife and children get saved, and this is why there is a household salvation teaching and theology in the Scriptures. As the spiritual leader and the head of the home, so often goes the home. And so the natural created structure is carried through today in the spiritual leadership, the instruction and authority in the church and through church leadership. Now, you can have one of two postures right now toward this. Number one, you can recoil against that kind of teaching. Or you can see that as a tremendous blessing of God so that as God works through the husband, you will tremendously and your children benefit from that. When you recoil as a wife against that, then you are actually harming yourself and your posterity after you. It is part of the divine design. Before the fall, when God said it is all very good. And so the headship principle here is retained in the church. Christ is the head of the church. Now, in Ephesians 1, it says that in a few chapters as it's beginning to introduce this entire doctrine of the church and the spiritual blessings that we have with God the Father and choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world and through God the Son and, and the redemption that we have in His body and His blood and through God the Spirit and the sealing for the day of the redemption and He has made all things under Christ who is the head of the church." Our husband. Now in a sense, is not Christ the sovereign of all? Absolutely he is Lord of all. But when the Bible says that he is the head of the church, he is the head over his wife in a covenantal design according to God's divine design in a very blessed kind of headship of which we the bride are so thankful for what our husband has done for us. He has provided for us salvation that we do not deserve. He has provided mercy and continues to refresh that every day. He provides grace and continues to bless us with the fruit of the Spirit and who does not want more joy and love and peace in his life. And he protects us from the evil one. That even now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for you, quite unknown to you in what he is doing there, and yet he is praying so that Satan does not sift you as wheat, and his prayers are efficacious to do just that. Our husband is a great man indeed, and a great God we have. So this divine design and makeup of a woman from the beginning, coupled now with the fact that the fall makes things very complicated, but before the fall, a woman's delight and and her joy was to be submissive to her husband and to be obedient to him. Let me just say that again. Before the fall, a wife's great delight was to be obedient and submissive to her husband. That was what she lived for, to the glory of God, unto God, right? That's hard to get our heads around, isn't it? Isn't it, ladies? Isn't it, men? <laughs> That's really hard to get our heads around. Because we are so trained and so naturally in the fallen world that that is not natural for us. That's not natural for any one of us who have to live under authority. Every one of us coming into this world with a natural bent to recoil against authority in our lives. Man or woman, doesn't matter. That's just how we are born in this world under the fallen conditions that we have. But authority before the fall was not something to be recoiled against, but just something to be delighted in. Something to praise God for. But the fall changes all that. It changed it in our own character, not because it was bad, but because our character says what is good is bad and what's bad is evil. No, what's bad is good. The woman will still be under her her husband's headship and authority, but now there's a tension in that relationship. She would desire to take control of that particular role manipulate her husband to accomplish her agenda or what she desires or to eliminate her fears in life or whatever the problem is. But she's going to find ways to have tension and bring tension in that relationship because of the fall. And that is exactly what God cursed. Her greatest delight is what He put the curse to. Your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you. Well, that was the "he shall rule over you" was not part of the curse. That was just the indicative of the way it was from the beginning. It's that now she's going to have a desire for that. She's not going to trust him, and you know why would any of you wives trust us? <laughs> right, um, we're fallen too. She's she's going to be afraid. Well. You know, that's true for us men too. It just is in a different arena. Wise, whatever struggles you have, know that us men have the same struggles because we're under the head of Christ. And when God says under the headship of Jesus Christ, who was the the leader of the armies of the God of hosts, who Joshua met, And he tells the people, go into the land, and the people cower in in fear, and they did not obey God because they did not trust God. See, we have the same issues, but just in a different arena. Well, when you have this vulnerable aspect built into woman's creative design but in the fall becomes now a great weakness what happens when man is not responsible with his wife when he does not provide the headship when he does not provide protection when he does not provide the kind of spiritual provision that she needs well disastrous things happen that's what happened in the fall Adam was within arm's reach. Adam was not deceived. Adam knew full well what was going on. She didn't. She was deceived, the scripture says. She believed a lie. She was believing something that was not true. That wasn't true for Adam, and he was within just arm's reach. And she gave the fruit to her husband, and he did eat as well. Eve didn't understand. She didn't have the same kind of perception of what was going on. Adam knew right away what was wrong. Eve, you might say, had sinned in ignorance, which is nonetheless still a sin. But Adam sinned in defiance. When man doesn't act as the spiritual head over his wife, the wife has the same kind of spiritual propensities as a widow. Now hear me, fellas, Uh, this is your responsibility. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, now Paul spends some time dealing with widows. And just a small section there, in verse 11 it says, but refuse the younger widows. Now he just got finished telling us what to do with the older widows. Not widows, widows. Who are 60 years of age or older. The husband only had, uh, she, she was a one husband woman. Same kind of terminology that is referred to as a one, man, uh, one woman man, as it refers to the qualifications for a deacon or elder. She is a one husband woman, but now she's a widow. She's of a certain age, she's got maturity, and she can be put on the list of the church special ministries, special honor. But not true for the younger widows, Paul says, but refuse the younger widows for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Now, that's describing young widows in the church body. We're not talking about the Moabites and the Hittites or the Greeks out there. We're talking about in the church body. And when a widow, a young lady whose husband dies and no longer is the spiritual head over her, there is not that spiritual protection, the spiritual headship. And so Paul's encouragement to the young woman here is to get married again. She has not developed the spiritual maturity under that spiritual head. And the point here I want us to get from this passage is not so much applied to the ladies, but to the men, because I want you to see from this passage... That when a husband doesn't provide the active spiritual headship for his wife, she will have the same propensities as spiritually immature widows. And that's why it's so essential for a husband to lead his wife spiritually. To be that protective head. To be proactively engaged in sanctifying her in the washing of the water of the Word that He might present to Himself a beautiful bride without spot or blemish or any such thing. And that's what Christ expects of us because she is a part of the bride that we are to give to the Lord. And so it demands our active, proactive, spiritual influence and leadership and protection and provision in her life and If we do not do that, her propensity, under even the being deceived, which we also have to protect, is somewhat marginalizing Christ, casting off their first faith and becoming idle and and, and not active, and their ministries begin to, to dwindle. Not exercising her gifts like she should, wandering about from house to house, and being idle, and gossips, and busybodies, and saying things they ought not to say. And, and husbands, it is up to you to be actively spiritual in your wives' lives so that they do not do this. This is on you, Husbands. This is your responsibility. Get the weeds out of the garden. Cultivate the garden. Make it into a beautiful vineyard. Make it fruitful. So when we consider the very divine makeup and propensities of, a, of how God made woman beautiful and good and said that's very good. In fact, I believe it's the only time he used the verb very. He emphasized the word good only after He made the woman. When He looks upon all of creation, and her being the last of the creative, earthly things, He can say it's very good now. As we consider this divine makeup, especially after the fall, let's consider those two principles now in more detail, submission and respect. And first of all, let me point out that there is a manner in which every one of us in the church are to submit one to another. Verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another. There is a way that I, as your pastor, submit to you. There's a way that I, as a father to my family, should submit to them. There is a way... In arranging my life in a covenantal framework that I can place myself in its proper place within that sphere that I give myself to that arrangement and yield. In fact, when you know the the, the attributes that are different between earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom from James... And we pray for wisdom, particularly in times of trial. And let any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who will give him liberally and upbraideth not, but let him ask in faith, right? And it goes on to say about the characteristics of that wisdom that comes down from heaven that's different from the way of the world. And it says it's peaceable, pure. And do you know what the next phrase is? It's willing to yield. And when we think about godly wisdom, there's a willingness, when we have it, of yielding to what God is doing, even in the hearts and lives and thinking of others. So there is a sense when we're talking about yielding ourselves unto Christ as the church, that I do this... In this vertical relationship, as it's played out in this horizontal relationship, in my attitude and spirit, one to another. And every one of us has this responsibility. But then it's going to focus the time here more particularly in a way that a wife is to be submissive to her husband and arrange herself under his headship. What's the difference? As a child of God and having the image of God restored in us, there should be no tension. No tension between those in authority and those under authority. There should not be. And we're not glorified yet. And our sanctification isn't perfect, so there is. But being restored in the image of God like it was before the fall, yet it's Already, not yet, right? But being in that new creation in Christ, there should not be a tension. The tension that exists between authority and those under authority is due to the fall and it is due to sinfulness. And there's a manner in a spirit where we do all yield to one another in the way that Philippians 3 tells us, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. And it's sharing with us a, a humble humility that we all should have. But beyond that, there is this divine created principle of headship that the wife has been designed for, has been created for. Now why does the Bible have to instruct the wife to submit here if this is how she is designed from the get-go? Any guesses there? Because the fall. That fall just messes everything up. Because the, the effects of that fall, the nature of the fall, the effects the fall had upon her, and even the curse of God. So this instruction is given in the context of the fallen condition of woman. Submission will not come naturally. Ladies, it will not come naturally. And and you know that. But it must, through habitual godly practice, become your second nature. Doesn't Come naturally. It's not your first nature, but it must, through godly formative practices, by the grace of God, become your second nature. It will be a part of your character development. Now what exactly is submission? The term submission, I looked the word up in the Greek and looked that up and, and took some of the word, theological word dictionaries and 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 let me just boil it down to this. The active voice of the Greek verb, to submit. The active voice means to bring under firm control. Like taking a wild Mustang stallion from off of the field's of the West, the wild West, and breaking him and taming him to the point where the rider can put a bit and bridle in his mouth and a saddle on his back and ride upon this wild, what used to be a wild stallion Mustang, but now is firmly under the control of the rider. That's the idea in the active voice. It means to firmly bring under control. But the command here is not given to the husbands, bring your wives under firm control, as the taming of the shrew perhaps might imply, but rather given to the wives. And the verb is not active, but in the middle voice. Now, in the Greek, the middle voice of a Greek verb is where the subject of the verb is active is acting upon itself for its own benefit. It's not the husband bringing the wife under firm control, but it is the wife bringing herself under control for her own benefit. That's the idea of the middle voice in this term, submission. In other words, the command for a wife is to submit to her husband and it is a voluntary act of the will of her under the headship of Christ, by the grace of Christ to bring herself under control under her husband for her benefit and for the glory of God. The term submit also has a meaning a meaning to arrange yourself under. In the ancient Greek, the military use of that term meant to arrange troop divisions under the command of a leader. There was a non-military use of the term that meant an attitude of giving in, of cooperating, of assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. Giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying A burden. So, the meaning of the command here is for a wife to bring herself under the head of her husband in a way that she arranges herself in a cooperative manner with an attitude and a spirit yielding to him according to his direction. I believe there is a difference between a worldly submission and a godly submission. Just like there is a difference between a worldly sorrow and a godly repentance. A worldly submission plays along because it may have no other choice but to play along. But the heart isn't engaged. The heart isn't yielded like my mom would tell me, son, you're... uh, sitting down on the outside, but you're still standing up in your heart. When she could tell that I was just jumping through the hoop that she put there for me and I would submit, but my heart was not in it, and it showed in my attitude, my disposition. That's worldly submission. To get back to the true pre-fall submission that Eve enjoyed with Adam before the curse, the wife must learn a second nature of genuine Heart yielded submission. Godly submission that honors God is a voluntary submission whose heart has yielded unto the Lord. And she understands her divine design and yields ultimately to the Lord who has made her and designed her to be under headship. And the key factor to genuine submission is when there's disagreement. Or when you don't see eye to eye on something. In fact, the true test of submission of the heart, of the heart, is how you respond when you disagree with your husband. Because godly submission is always an issue, first and foremost, of the heart. Now ladies, this, this does not come naturally. It's got to be developed It's got to be trained according to the the newness of the world in which you now live and dwell and move and have your being. And that's why godly older women are to help wives in this way. And the helping of wives into understanding how to obey their husbands is something that older wives often learned the hard way and are having to be able to communicate the things of life to the younger women, but it really is going to happen is over and over in a formative practice until it becomes second nature. It's not natural. It's not your first nature. It's a virtue that comes by the grace of God as you develop this godly character. From the sermon several weeks ago, and I just did a cut and paste, let me just remind you there, because in order to develop character, you need three things. One, you have to aim at the right goal. Begin with the end in mind. Number two, you have to figure out what steps you need to get to that goal from where you currently are. And then number three, and this is important, you need to work to make those steps habitual. You work to make those steps habitual as a second nature. The transformation of that character and that virtue is what happens when someone has made a thousand small little choices requiring effort and concentration to do something which is right and good, but does not come naturally. And then on the a thousand and one time when it really matters, they find that what is doing and what is required just comes automatically. It looks like it just happens. It looks like it happened naturally, but that was something that developed a virtue and a transformation of character. Being renewed in our minds. Being transformed. Putting off the old by putting on the new. Christian virtue is a team sport, if you will a covenantal relationship it can only be effectively uh, effective only when each member of the large diverse group team is playing his or her unique role and distinctive part in a careful relationship to every other member for the good of the whole team so that's how this is going to develop in you young ladies. This is how it's going to develop in us men. It's going to have to be making a thousand little choices every day for good and right that's just deliberate, a scripting, if you will, that you put before your mind and you're going to have to make a thousand little small choices that begin to change you into something that becomes second nature. It will not feel natural to you. But you're making these decisions. See, your will, by the grace of God, is now free to choose that which is right. See, a, a, a dead will, when we speak about the freedom of the will, we're, we largely, we're, we're thinking about that, that makeup of man before he was regenerate. But I'm afraid that so many people then take that right into the rest of their Christian lives and and say, you know, "I, I, I can't do that. Yes, you can. You can do what is right. You can make the right choices and the right decisions because that is what God has restored in you in Christ. You are now free and you can make the right choices, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has set you free. That's what that is all about. That's submission. Arranging yourself under... The authority of the another. But the second principle of this passage instructs women is to respect their husbands. This is a difficult one, and it's not easy for a woman to teach another woman how to respect a man because she doesn't have the man's perspective on how the man interprets and receives what is communicated. That's why I'm delicately going to try to help you ladies from a man's perspective, and then you older ladies who began to have grown in this will be able to help the younger ones. But even you will not understand it unless a man instructs you. So this is an opportunity to submit. <laughs> See, now again, this whole idea of, of respect for the husband... And again, this is what we need to do with Christ. This is how we need to respect Christ and how we are to live in relation to Christ as it pertains to the opportunity of one another's. But it's going to go right back to the divine makeup between men and women. What women desire most from their husbands is to be loved and felt loved. But what a man desperately needs the most from his wife is respect. That's why the passage ends, but I say, men, love your wives, Christ, respect your husbands. He did not say, wives, love your husbands. It doesn't mean that she shouldn't love her husband. Don't go there. But what he needs the most is the respect of his wife. That's what he needs. See, it's different. You can't look at what he needs based upon your own personal autobiography or your own personal projection. It will not work. I'm going to give him what I think he needs based upon what I feel that I need. That will fail. That's not at all how we are made. And that's why God has to tell us how we are made. And we have to organize ourselves under his truth. The meaning of respect comes from the word phoboeo, phobia. Is that word ring a bell? Phobia? That's the root of this verb to respect and that word in its very mundane everyday use in the greek means to fear to fear now, there's different nuances of the word to fear by the way it's used in scripture we are to fear god but we are not to fear man but there is a fear here that is spoken of as a wife to her husband And the term is translated here, respect. Some translations would translate it reverence. The word actually has a sense of awe that is in it. Inherent in this word is gravitas, weightiness. The Hebrew word for honor is the word heavy. And so when you think about children, honor is, Your father and mother. The word heavy comes into play. There's gravitas. There's gravity. There's seriousness. There is sobriety. There is a carefulness full of care. There's a temperance that's inherent. There's a guardedness with your spirit and with your tongue. Ladies, in this manner and with this attitude, your husband not only desires from you, but he needs it from you. You have an inherent trait in your relationship with your husband to form him into a pile of mush or to rise up and to be the man that you've always wanted and needed him to be. And you have an incredible amount of influence to make him one or the other. And a lot of that power and influence comes from the kind of energy that you communicate to your husband. A husband who day in and day out lives with a disrespectful wife Will be in time a ruined man. A wife, a wise woman, can build up her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands, the proverb says. How does she pull it down? The proverb says by being disrespectful and contentious with her husband. And the contentiousness, contentions of a wife are a continual dropping. Proverbs 19.13 Better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a house shared with a contentious woman. Proverbs 21, nine. So respect, gravity, weightiness, sobriety, temperance, full of care, guarded, phobia, awe. Sometimes it helps when we learn the nuances of the meaning of words by by thinking about their opposites. The opposite of respect would be to despise or to show contempt for. That's what Michael had in her heart when she looked out of the window and saw David twirling before the Lord before the ark. If you go back and read the entire narrative where there was failure and, and Uzzah died and then they put it in, in Obed-Edom's house for a while and they watched to see what God would do and, and, and God blessed the house. So they go and they get the art. This time they did it in submission to God's Word. And they went six paces and everything was going Great. And they stopped right then, they sacrificed and praised God. Then the whole rest of the train was just a bunch of festivity and singing and praising. And the the maidens were playing their temples and David was twirling with all of his might. So that he might have been a little immodest. At least in the eyes of Michael, he was being that way. Um, And she despised him in his heart. Began in her heart. See, that's where submission and respect begins. It begins in the heart attitude that she has toward this one that God says he has a heart after my own. Another opposite of respect is dishonor. And the dishonor, you're thinking about the word honor being heavy and has gravitas to it. To dishonor means to treat lightly without gravity frivolous, trite, perhaps treats her husband with too much familiarity. Does that make sense? I know that a husband and wife share all things and bear all things and the two become one flesh, but do you know what I mean when I say too familiar? You know how when you get too familiar with someone, you can forget your role and you can be very disrespectful because you now just have a streaming of consciousness and whatever you feel, you say, and you can just spurt off without any kind of constraints on your spirit. You become too familiar and so common is it that you forgot not only your role, but His role. and We, we can do that with God and we do that with God and we shouldn't. And we shouldn't do that with our husbands or any of our authorities. An opposite characteristic of respect would be careless. Careless with her husband and the manner that she has toward him. Unguarded. Lightly esteemed. And like submission, this virtue must be shaped in the heart of the wife. It doesn't come naturally, but it must become second nature. And God has graced you that this can be. It has to do with truly understanding God's design and role for the wife in relation to her husband and the church in relation to Christ. And you are to be submissive to your own husbands as unto the Lord. And so this whole thing plays itself out in a symbolic way of the reality that stands behind it all. And wives have a tremendous amount of power in their makeup as made in the image of God and being the very complement to their husbands. And therefore, they either build up or tear down their households. Ladies, this, this means that you need to respect your husbands, and when you do, by the grace of God, that will become your greatest joy once again. approaching with gravity and sobriety, guarded. Allow that characteristic, which must be developed with a thousand little decisions in life until it becomes second nature and it begins to govern your spirit so that it seems like it's happened automatically. But what has happened is over years, that character has been trained and developed. Now, here are some of those little thousand decisions you need to make on a day by day basis. Number one, you need to open yourself up to your husband's leadership. You need to be teachable and led by your husband. Take the concept of submission. You need to bring yourself under control. And you need to put it in the middle voice. You're going to bring yourself yourself under your husband's control and it will be for your benefit. Arrange yourself under his leadership. If you're unclear about a particular area of his leadership in your family, your household, or your life, you need to ask him, communicate with him so you can arrange yourself accordingly. Number two, respect and do not despise his counsel. You must remain open to your, his spiritual leadership and instruction and in righteousness in your life. This often takes an attitude adjustment. Especially when wives think themselves to be more smart and wise than their husbands. And let me tell you what, there's a lot of wives that are smarter and wiser than their husbands. That's not the point. Because even if that's the case, you have to remember that you, by your nature, are more prone to deception and believing things that are not right. There's a propensity, a vulnerability here that you need his counsel and instruction. It's not the amount of smarts that prevent mistakes here from being made. It's not how smart you are, it's a divine direction of a man being led by the headship of Christ in the wisdom of God. And you're going to have to trust God's order in which he has given. So appreciate your husband's analysis and counsel, his, his problem solving. Appreciate it and tell him that. Affirm him in these things. That's respecting him. Number three, appreciate his work. Appreciate your husband's work, his provision and his protection in your life. Inform him that you highly esteem his work and labor, no matter what his labor. Chesley and I have good friends. Uh, we've referenced them before. They were our old Sunday school teachers. He's the one that wrecked the motorcycle, yes. Uh, but Frank was, um, was a butcher at Publix when Mary and Frank got married. She was a sales executive at Xerox. They went to a, a Christmas um, party of Xerox one day, and and mary just respected her husband she thanked him for the work he's done the fact that he was a butcher and she was a sales rep at xerox did not matter she respected her husband she believed in her husband And then he got hired by Xerox and over time, little by little, became a vice president of sales of a national corporation from the place of cutting meat in Publix as a butcher because of her wife and the grace of God working in that. Ladies, every day you have a little decision to make. You can either nag him or belittle him about what he doesn't do to make enough money for your family or you can decide to communicate your appreciation for what he does do and how much he's provided and and to encourage him because he needs respect in this. And he needs to hear it from you. Let me tell you what, your influence in that man can make him beyond what you can often think. But if you can be settled in your heart and your spirit... That even if he remains a butcher at Publix, that you can love and respect that. He might just make his way to the vice president of sales in some corporation one day. So you have that kind of influence and power. If a husband ever feels like he has to defend his work or provision to his family when he's being faithful in that, the wife can right then be assured that she is failing in godly respect in this department. And her nagging can, and often does, lead to a self-fulfilling prophecy of failure. Behind every strong leader is a good wife. You've heard that. And there's truth there. Honor him in his provision for the home. No matter how meager it is, if he's working, and he's being diligent as unto the Lord, then be content with what God has done. Well, the same thing is true regarding his ministry in the church. If he's giving himself to the ministry and that's what God's called him to do, then you need to encourage him in his ministry, not not belittle him, not be like Michael looking down upon David when his ministry was to bring back the ark and now all she can do is find fault with him in the ministry that he has. Or the the eagerness and the, and the, the joy that he was expressing, she despised him first in her heart, and then she unleashed on him verbally when he got home. I think it's true that the Lord vindicated David, not her, in that little scuffle, and she did not bear again. But Wives, fifth, make your husbands large in your eyes. That's respect. That's what they need. Be careful. That is full of care with yourself in your relation with your husband. Don't belittle him. Watch how you answer him. Hear the tone of voice that comes through and consider your nonverbal communications. Okay. <laughs> we talk about our kids doing that, right? Um, Someone asked me one time, do you discipline your kids just for actions or for attitudes? I'm like, yeah, both. Um, So, wives, watch your children, and you can learn a lot about yourself. Because they're seeing something of a model being lived out in your homes. And oftentimes what is true of you will be amplified in your children. And oftentimes that's not a pleasant sight. That's true for us husbands as well. But lies, do not, do not make your husband the brunt of a joke or the laughing stock, even if he laughs along with it. Don't do that. Don't put him down, especially in front of others, but don't put him down. Don't minimize him or his work or his provision. Don't be like make Michael was to David. You can make your husband. When you make your husband's husbandry easy for him, it becomes all the more beneficial to you. And I want to close with a book from Hebrews which speaks about our honor and submission to our church elders, but it's applicable to wives with their husbands as well. In Hebrews 13.17 it says, "...Obey those who rule over you." And be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. The way that a wife, the way of the wife is the way of the church. For I speak about Christ and the church. Let's make it easy for Christ Because then it would be profitable for us. Wives, make it easy for your husbands and then it will be profitable and beneficial for you. And God takes all the glory through it all. And it will take the gospel power to make it become second nature in your life. Our gracious Father in heaven, we pray that you would take us and transform us in this kingdom of light that you have brought us into. And we're thankful that you have washed us clean from our sins and that Christ has died and been risen from the dead and in his glorified state now communicates with us and is changing us. He was not satisfied to merely leave us where he found us, but he accepted us there and now he is making himself a beautiful bride and we submit to your fatherly, heavenly husbandry care. We want to arrange ourselves under your headship in a way that would make it easy and pleasing to you. We pray that we would walk humbly with our God and be easy and quick to admit our, our failures and our sins and to repent and to change our mind as well as our ways and direction and find the, the better, easier way in Christ. Lord, we feel in our spirit a propensity to recoil against those governing officials that you put into our lives, whether that be our husbands or the church uh, elders or the state governors or the king. We, We pray, Lord, that you will work in our own spirit that we would truly from our hearts submit and be respectful as we do unto you. And so give us the grace that we need and be glorified in taking this message and applying it with Your Spirit very particularly, not just to the wise, but to us all. And that You would bring forth much fruit, peaceable fruits of righteousness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.